Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we explore how natural disasters intersect with an increase in domestic violence. The Marshall Fire was really kind of a watershed moment for us to realize that we could reach out and look at this overlap and see if we can try and help. And we learn how the recent Omicron surge is affecting daily life for University of Northern Colorado students, faculty, and staff. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. COVID-19 cases remain high across the U.S. and here in Colorado, driven by the highly transmissible Omicron variant. Although cases and hospitalizations are leveling off or declining in many places, many experts are cautioning that the wave is not over yet. And all of this has been on the minds of college and university administrators as students headed back to class this month. Blaine Nickerson is University of Northern Colorado's Associate Vice President for Administration, and he joins us now. Blaine, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. UNC is requiring booster shots for students coming back to campus. I'm wondering how UNC uh, came to that decision to require boosters. Well, I think you know, really just following the science and seeing that, uh, you know, as the Omicron wave really started to spread, uh, you know, across the, the, the United States in, in, in December, really seeing that the level of protection afforded by the original doses um, was waning. And so, um, you know, one of our key goals at UNC has been to maintain as many normal in-person experiences as possible, uh, which is why for the fall semester, we had a requirement for um, vaccinations. And um, for the spring semester, it just made good sense to be able to um, add on that booster requirement to make sure that we were doing the best we could to uh, protect our community and, and bring those in-person experiences back uh, in January. What are vaccination rates and booster rates looking like on campus right now? Well, I don't have uh, very good information on the booster rates because uh, folks have through February 7th to be able to submit those uh, affidavits and paperwork. Um, but prior to uh, the, prior to the end of the fall semester, uh, our rates were, were quite good. Our faculty and staff were about 91% vaccinated, and our students were around 87% vaccinated. So um, a high level of protection uh, on the campus uh, with, again, roughly 90% uh, of the campus population having submitted vaccination records. And I understand you also have a system for students and staff to opt out of vaccination. Can you walk us through how that works? Sure. So uh, we, we do allow uh, both uh, personal and medical exemptions at UNC. Uh, for a medical exemption, uh, a student would uh, have a form that their healthcare provider uh, fills out for them and has uh, you know, the information that's needed uh, about why their medical exemption exists. Uh, but we do have a personal exemption. It's a pretty simple form. It just says that at this time, the individual um, is choosing uh, not to get vaccinated. Um, it doesn't mean that they can't uh, change their mind at some point. We did see a number of students uh, who, despite filling out an exemption form back in, say, August or September, 
um, decided, you know, later on, especially as Delta was spreading and Omicron was coming, that it was it was time for them to get their their shots. So it's not a binding uh, prohibition of being able to get the vaccine at some point. It just means right now it's not the, the choice that they want to make. Uh, for faculty and staff, it's a little bit different. We use an affidavit process as opposed to submitting actual vaccination records. Um, but but we, uh, we we try to make it uh, pretty pain free and uh, simple for both students and, and employees to be able to uh, comply with the requirements. Have you done any uh, mobile vaccination clinics or anything like that on campus? We have. We've had great partners from uh, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, um, and they have really had a lot of success with bringing one of their mobile vaccination buses uh, to the campus. In fact, they're on campus as we speak today uh, through Saturday. Um, and, and so we, we have a lot of dates scheduled here in the first couple months of 2022. Uh, we had them out many times during the fall semester. Uh, they like our location, uh, not just because of the campus community, but also the surrounding Greeley community um, having easy access to be able to uh, you know, access that vaccination bus. And, and the buses are great uh, through the state because they have all the different doses, um, you know, uh, whether it be Moderna or Pfizer, they have the, the youth, uh, smaller five to 11 uh, size dose for uh, children. I'm not sure if they still do, but throughout the fall, they had uh, free flu shots as well. So that was a nice feature to be able to have both for um, the campus community and the broader community. We've also partnered uh, throughout the fall with uh, Weld County Public Health and have held uh, some pop-up vaccination clinics, primarily around uh, encouraging people to get those booster doses uh, in, in the university center at UNC. Sure. And I know you have a testing site on campus. Is that seeing a lot of activity? <laughs> it is a very popular destination right now. Um, we, uh, in, in the last week, saw over 3,000 tests uh, take place at that location. Again, that's a a, a resource for the campus community, but it's also for the broader Greeley and Weld County community as well. So we see a lot of um, community members utilizing that testing and um, have really been seeing record numbers of testing taking place uh, in the last couple of weeks. And I'm wondering if UNC has gotten much pushback on requiring vaccines or requiring the booster. You know, we really haven't. And I think it's because, uh, as I mentioned, we do have a, a, a um, uh, an option for folks to elect to take a personal exemption. Um, we make that pretty easy for folks to be able to do that. And so, you know, when people, if they are upset about us having a requirement for vaccination, it's pretty easy to point and say, well, there, there's an avenue here for you to, uh, to, to opt out of that requirement. And it's not a, a very onerous one for you to have to comply with it as we talked about. So in general, I think, um, you know, our, our main goal has been able to maintain in-person experiences. And, uh, you know, we've been successful thus far doing that. And our, our high vaccination rate is, a, is a, a key part to why we've been successful. We're speaking with Blaine Nickerson, Associate Vice President for Administration at the University of Northern Colorado. Uh, as we mentioned, COVID case numbers driven by the highly contagious Omicron variant are climbing higher than ever right now. You mentioned trying to keep a lot of experiences as normal as possible for students. How is the spread of Omicron impacting classes and campus activities right now? 
Well, it's certainly having impacts, just like it is, you know, at, at restaurants, at, at businesses, uh, you know, trying to go to the grocery store and seeing how stocked or unstocked the shelves are. I mean, we, we aren't immune to that in that we do have impacts from people that are either um, getting sick with Omicron and needing to isolate away from campus. Maybe they need to quarantine because they uh, have been exposed. And then another thing where we also see an impact is with, um, you know, parents, whether they be uh, employees or students, uh, when they have children that are in the K-12 schools and the K-12 schools have to pivot back and forth, um, you know, we certainly see impacts from that. So UNC is not immune uh, to, to the, this uh, situation. We, we do have a manageable case count, though. I mean, um, right now, at, at the time of taping here, we're tracking about 80 positive cases amongst all faculty, students, and staff. And, um, you know, most of those folks, uh, if not all, have mild symptoms. Uh, again, I think that's a testament to our high vaccination rate uh, that, that folks have had some type of protection against the Omicron variant. Uh, but it does have disruption, uh, you know, the, but not to the extent of you know, real significant uh, changes to the way that the semester has started out. We still have classes in person. Um, we still have athletic events taking place with our um, UNC Bears, you know, basketball, for example, uh, taking place following the uh, protocols of the, the Big Sky Conference and the NCAA. Uh, but yeah, we've, we've mainly been able to continue to do uh, the things that are associated with a normal college experience. Do you anticipate there would ever be a point where instruction would need to go back to remote again? I don't believe that we'll be in a situation where we'll have to do that. And, and part of the reason I say that is because we know that the instruction that's taking place inside of our classrooms is actually one of the lowest risk things that, we, that you can do related to COVID. I mean, we have a mask requirement on campus when you're indoors. Uh, we have a highly vaccinated population. Um, we know that just uh, that single lever of in-person versus uh, remote learning uh, doesn't change all the other things that our students are doing outside of the classroom, <laughs> whether that be working in the community, whether it be some of the extracurricular activities that college students are uh, you know, uh, likely to be participating in. Um, we went, you know, many times students are living in sort of high density kind of situations, whether it be, you know, a shared house or apartment or, or living in the residence halls. And so that, 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 that lever of in-person instruction versus remote instruction just really isn't that powerful when you think about how Omicron is going to spread, um, in so many other parts of people's lives. I know that you have an online system to report exposures to COVID. I'm wondering how tracking works and whether you still notify people who may have come into contact with someone who tested positive for COVID. Sure. So UNC has a dedicated uh, COVID response team. Uh, they're, they're a group that works seven days a week. And um, members of the community can file case reports um, through our website where they can either report um, a positive case, they can report that they're experiencing symptoms, um, or they can report that they were in close contact with somebody that um, has developed uh, COVID-19. Uh, that team then works through um, any contact tracing that's necessary. Uh, they work through, um, you know, really importantly taking care of our students. So we have a real we feel like we have a real responsibility to take care of our students, particularly our students that live on campus. 
Um, and so that team will work individually with students to, if necessary, move them to a dedicated room for their isolation and quarantine, to arrange for meals to be delivered to their room, to help them access any resources and communicating with their faculty uh, about their, their lack of ability to come to class in person. Um, and then really sort of being a case manager throughout that process, letting them know when it's the right time for them to be able to leave their isolation or quarantine. And so we're really proud about the level of care that we show towards students um, and our faculty and staff, of course, but generally our faculty and staff are quite a bit more um, uh, able to sort of navigate for themselves or fend for themselves. Um, but that team does work through all those kinds of cases. They do notifications. At a minimum, somebody will get um, a, a customized email that will talk about sort of what symptoms they should monitor for, what types of isolation or quarantine they should do. Um, so we, we've been using that system effectively uh, throughout the pandemic, um, and we have a pretty well-oiled machine there. Um, Omicron has certainly given us plenty of um, additional practice, that's for sure. Blaine Nickerson is University of Northern Colorado's Associate Vice President for Administration. Blaine, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Risk factors for experiencing domestic violence are complex and varied, but some research suggests that incidents increase in the wake of natural disasters, including pandemics and wildfires like those recently experienced in Boulder County. Ruby Johnston is a victim advocate at the Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence in Boulder, and she joins us now for more. Ruby, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely, Erin. Thank you guys for having me. Um, I really Really appreciate it. Well, to start, can you give us some background about what the Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence does? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so I myself am an advocate in our shelter, which is, I think, when people um, tend to get a picture of what uh, domestic violence services look like, they just picture um, a battered women's shelter, which is part of what SPAN, um, Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence, offers. Um, some of our survivors, but SPAN is um, a lot more than that. It We have um, a whole varied um, set of resources that um, anyone who's experienced domestic violence can access. We have a legal advocacy team um, who does amazing outreach and work. Um, we have um, our counseling team that does incredible work as well. And they offer weekly support groups, individual counseling, um, and we also have an incredible um, development team that's really strong at outreaching to the Boulder community. Uh, so what we offer is um, a lot more varied than just a standard battered women's shelter. So just trying to resource survivors in as many different ways as possible while they lead themselves to a healthier and happier life. After the Marshall Fire, did you see an increase in people coming to SPAN? We, we do have numbers to suggest um, that holds up to the research that domestic violence does increase after natural disasters, but it tends to not be right away with any kind of um, a natural disaster. We actually see in the first couple of days um, less calls and less people reaching out than normal. And then kind of once the dust has settled, 
we see um, much more of an uptick with uh, people seeking seeking help and realizing that they need to reach out and ask for help. And I want to try to dig in and understand the link a little bit. Um, I understand there's not a ton of research on the prevalence of domestic violence after a disaster, but there has been some, especially since Hurricane Katrina. Can you tell us a bit about what that research shows? It's interesting and it's very in-depth, but once you hear it, it's kind of like, oh, that's pretty obvious. Um, Like the research with the overlap between domestic violence and COVID-19. If someone is in an abusive relationship and they're in quarantine with their abuser and they're with them all the time, of course those numbers are gonna rise and that's gonna go up and uh, become more severe, Um, which is, it's very unfortunate, but um, victims of DV tend to suffer um, a whole compound kind of set of issues after natural disasters. Um, They can lose their housing, There's financial security, increased parenting responsibilities, um, a loss of social support and their safety net networks. So people tend to get cut off from friends or family. Um, Just as domestic violence is very isolating, natural disasters are very isolating as well. And people feel like they're a burden almost um, on folks. So that um, will increase that. And then the increased stress between um, an abuser and a survivor, tends to get compounded as well, just with financial stressors and social stressors. Uh, It makes things really tense um, and isolates the survivor um, to um, just an increased amount. Um, And then there are other minor issues, like if um, short-term housing, all of a sudden there's no longer access to it. Like most, many of our survivors, we send to housing in Longmont where the fire affected. So now there's just a complete dearth of resources for these folks. Um, If somebody is at a safe location and they've moved away from an abuser and have changed their address and let's say their house burns down and they have a temporary housing um, relief offered to them, that's great. But their name and address is now going to be publicized. One of my questions was going to be, how does housing insecurity fit into whether people decide to seek help or not? That is, um, that's a big question because I, many of the people that we see um, just really don't know that there are ways for them to get affordable housing. Um, Our housing team does an incredible job working with anybody who's experienced domestic violence and finding them Um, either short-term housing or somewhere more permanent with that. Um, But it is, it's a scary thing to try and try and leave and get away from. Um, And uh, confidentiality is a huge issue for lots of people. They become very scared that if they spend a bunch of money on an apartment and then all of a sudden their address is compromised, what happens now? Um, It's a big factor in why a lot of people stay. We're speaking with Ruby Johnston, a victim advocate at the Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence in Boulder or SPAN. Ruby, um, after after something like the Marshall Fire occurs, do you think people on the front lines helping fire survivors understand how to recognize uh, and help domestic violence survivors? That's an excellent question. And it's something I was really hoping that we would touch upon because I don't think people... um, really are comfortable having those conversations. And it is kind of similar to to suicide in that way, in that if you talk about it and people become more comfortable destigmatizing it, 
then folks that might be affected by domestic violence um, feel like it's a little bit safer to reach out. Um, I think it's more of a comfort level than a recognition kind of level. And do you do work with um, people helping out on the front lines to kind of uh, give them some education about maybe how to spot some signs? Um, Unfortunately, we don't. We're kind of hoping to. We sometimes have um, interactions with law enforcement, which I think is very helpful in um, being a little bit more trauma informed in those kinds of situations. But for the most part, um, I personally don't think that um, anybody in uh, firefighting industry or law enforcement or really anything that's offering immediate emergency services has um, a way to ask or ask those questions, look for those signs and try and support people in that way. What kinds of services have people been needing after the Marshall Fire? It's a variety. We've gotten some some weird calls, uh, honestly, where people really want to help, which is great, but they're asking if they can donate like a couch and a TV for survivors of the fire, which is um, a little odd, but people are motivated to help, which is great. Um, but as far as needs go, I mean, housing is definitely one um, rent's going to increase in those locations because of this. So financial assistance is one that we've seen, um, counseling as well. People feel, um, very isolated after a natural disaster and don't really know where to turn. So it's, uh, it's a variety. Ruby, we know that natural disasters and major weather events are becoming more frequent as time goes on. Is SPAN helping domestic violence survivors plan ahead or prepare for what to do in these situations? We um, we are now. Because of this, um, the Marshall Fire was really uh, kind of a watershed moment for us to realize that we could reach out and look at this overlap and see if we can try and help. Um, A big part of what we do with survivors is called safety planning, which sounds like a very simple, basic thing. Of course, for a natural disaster, like a fire, you want to know where all of your important documents are. You want to know where the car keys are. You want to know if you have an escape route, if you can go sleep on somebody's couch, if you're going to go to a hotel, who can you call? Um, Domestic violence is similar in that way, but kind of different because every survivor is so different and so varied and safety planning becomes just kind of this enigma that is really hard to tie together for individuals. Um, But one of the most important things that we can do for folks is really get the word out and just make sure that they know that they have a safe place to go, um, a safe person to call, if they have somewhere else to go for emergency shelter. Um, We just try to resource folks as much as possible. And that overlap with planning for a natural disaster um, is becoming increasingly more important. What advice would you give to domestic violence survivors who want to be prepared for an event like the Marshall Fire? I would suggest that they, they think about a real safety plan and um, not to be um, just an alarmist, but possibly think about the worst case scenario and have someone to call, have a social network that you can rely on and can say like, you're never gonna believe what's happened, but the house has burned down. 
um, I have to move in with him to an emergency housing because no one will separate us because we're married. Um, there are financial repercussions. So just having a little bit of extra income, if that's possible for you, um, and knowing that there are resources that exist to help with these kinds of emergencies. And how can loved ones of survivors help them prepare for and get through a disaster like this? I think it's very similar to talking about like firefighters or EMTs who just aren't comfortable having the conversation and friends and family um, need to destigmatize it and just try and let their loved ones know that there is a support system there for them, that there are people that love them, that they are not completely alone and that they have somewhere safe to go, someone safe to call, um, just less isolation. Yeah, it sounds like communication is really key here because of that that isolation. Absolutely, yeah. Communicating even when, if there isn't a natural disaster imminent, communication is one of the most important things and just having a safety network for survivors is one of the most empowering things and one of um, the most helpful things. Ruby Johnston is a victim advocate at the Safe House Progressive Alliance for Nonviolence in Boulder. Thank you so very much for being here and talking with me today. Absolutely. Thank you guys for for having me. If anyone is interested in helping survivors of domestic violence or survivors of the Marshall Fire, um, the easiest thing to do would be to donate. We have a really easy link on our website. We would love any support that we can get. And the most important thing that I would hope that folks take from the show is knowing that they're not alone and that there are people out there for them who want to help. our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll hear how decreasing water flows in the Republican River are leading some farmers to change what and how they grow. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.